Where's my axe? I'm hungry! Hello again after a very long hiatus. Woo! Welcome to Get to Work Hurley, the podcast for anyone who's ever been frustrated with the pro writing life. I am, of course, your host, Cameron fucking Hurley. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing how to take notes, you know, all that feedback and shit that you get back from your agent, from editors, from beta readers, from your critique group. Uh, how to actually incorporate those without destroying the lovely, unique story that you have. We'll also talk about long-term career planning and also why it seems that books become more difficult to write the more of them you write. And uh, then I'll also be tackling some listener questions. I know I have been on hiatus for a while. Life got very busy juggling that day job and the full-time writing. And then it got super manic when I was laid off from my day job. Um, I think it was February 1st, March 1st, somewhere around that time. Uh, and then I was, you know, scrambling to make ends meet. And it was really, really very stressful. And then my Spanish uh, publisher brought me on a book tour in July, which sounds super fancy. It was actually super exhausting and fun and fun. It was very fun. But it was also get up at 4.30 in the morning get onto a plane, have a quick rest and lunch, do an event, go to sleep, get up, do it all over again. Uh, so it was it was quite exhausting. And then, of course, I had the new book, Losing Gravity, that I needed to turn out because I was supposed to get in July and only got to finish finally in September. Anyway, not the whole book, just what I needed to give to my agent so that she will leave me alone for a little while. So, but a lot of you said that you actually missed the podcast. And I've been hearing that, that uh, especially for the last several months, uh, as I've been resharing some of the episodes. And I know podcasts are apparently a big deal now. <laughs> Everybody, they are all the rage. <laughs> People like Mer Lafferty are like, yes, they have been for 20 years. Um, but anyhow, we're back. And without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into today's uh, topics. So first off, how to take notes. And I've been working with my agent on a new book, which I was talking about called Losing Gravity. And I pitched it as Killing Eve Meets Die Hard in Space. Isn't that a great pitch? Thank you. Thank you. Now, it turns out that some Hollywood agents thought so too, and they were eager to get their hands on some pages and a synopsis that they could then shop around to production companies. Now, before you all get really excited, I have several projects being shopped around uh, various places and very little has come of it. I actually had someone <laughs> someone offer me an option, an option money of $2,500 for 18 months on one of my projects. And I was just like, do you want me to die? Do you want me to starve? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> So that one did not work out. Uh, I think at this at this point in my career, uh, especially as I had said, I'm writing full time now for between day jobs, and uh, I need to actually make money. I need to actually make money, and I know what my shit is worth. So anyway, 
So now, the only trouble with Hollywood agents wanting these pages is that, of course, at that point, I sold a book to Joe Monty at Saga Press that was just, it was just that pitch. In fact, it was less than that pitch. It was just, it was just Cameron Hurley's next book. He really just wanted Cameron Hurley's next book. God bless you, Joe. And I, I know that's wild, but with the success of books like Stars of Legion uh, and The Light Brigade, I was able to sell a single title that was just next book. So yay, go me. Now, again, as I talked about, it's been a wild summer and I had to refill my idea bucket. So it took a few months to get those first 50 pages to my agent. And the notes then that came back from my agent were in a few chunks, which kind of boiled down to, and again, I had to read between the lines, boiled down to too much emphasis on the party scene, too much of the billionaire boss, not enough tension and fuckery throughout just too cozy, which I thought was weird. I think it was cozy was the word she used. Um, now we went back and forth and I was like, okay, so if the beginning is a little so maybe I should start with the murder to give us more time on Mars. And she's like, yeah, more time on Mars is good, but just driving to the port as the opening of the book is not it, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's probably true. Now, when a lot of folks give notes, what they are telling you is often their sense of things. Their sense that, hey, this, I was bored during this section. I didn't believe this. This was unbelievable. These characters were not working for me. I didn't believe in them. And sometimes they make suggestions on how to fix these issues. Um, though I found that many of these suggestions can be less than helpful. Instead, I found that the best way to view notes is to see them as identifying something that takes the reader out of the story, that strikes them as not working. And when you do that, then you can approach the book in revision with these particular thoughts in mind. So you are, they are identifying areas where they lost interest, they, it was unbelievable, whatever. You can bring that perspective now to the manuscript when you are reading it, rereading it. So, I did this. I took another look at the pages. I had known there was too much of the party scenes and too much exposition. And on rereading the opening on Mars, I did find that there was very little tension. And some of that was I was kind of aping the same beginning as Nothing Lasts Forever, which is actually the novel um, that Die Hard is based on. And it just, it, it wasn't, the translation was not working. So my instincts tell me that... Uh, a thriller like this would make more sense opening with a scene of murder. And I have watched a lot of murder shows. <laughs> so, but having my protagonist then investigate that murder would, would give us a little more kind of to go on. And this, this would also give me more of a chance to show her in action and show why she was interesting, right? Characters, I've always believed that you don't necessarily need to be likable, but they should be interesting. They should be dynamic. There should be something about them that um, makes them immediate, where you're immediately just interested in them and you want to know more. So I set up a tension between my protagonist and the Martian officers on the scene who don't like EarthGov people and who also had a secret to hide, right? And she's got secrets to hide too. And it's, it becomes very clear. Everybody, everybody's got a secret. This was one of those things, actually. I was reading a thriller, um, a thriller book about how to write mysteries and things. And it always helps to give every single character a secret 
right? And in fact, you look at kind of the God's War books and a lot of those characters, everybody has a secret, right? Uh, and which I find super interesting because that's, those are the, the like mortal wounds, right? That they all are trying to hide from everyone. And that just makes for more tension. So these choices then made the opening more interesting. And it also kind of fueled, again, as I said, that tension. And to do that required me to ask myself what each of these characters in the scene wanted and how those things then were at odds with each other, which I've talked about again in, in creating any sort of, you know, ragtag group of folks. It helps to sit down and say, okay, where are the tensions between and among all of these characters? Now, when it came to the party scenes, I cut all the heavy handed bits about it being a holiday party, right? Die hard in space. We get it. It's December 24th. It says so in the chapter header. And, you know, besides this far in the future and on another planet, fewer people are going to be taking note of that. And it's mostly just there as a nod wink to die hard, right? In the audience. And so I got that by doing that, I also kind of got my protagonist through the party much more quickly. It was more of a, instead of an event, it was just something that she kind of walks through, which is good. Um, so that we know that it's happening and it's, it's a scene, it's a scene setting, right? It's not a place where things happen. It's just to set that scene for what's going to go on, uh, later on in the story. Now, my agent came back with one last note, okay? Which was that there just felt like too many characters here in the opening. So her suggestion then was maybe you should cut more of the scenes with the billionaire boss. And again, the Nakatomi. But I felt there needed to be more of the billionaire boss, not less, because there was really some great tension between what she wanted and what, of course, my murder investigator protagonist wanted, right? So there's a media that tension as soon as they meet. So instead, I actually cut an extraneous character that literally only showed up to escort my protagonist from her shuttle to the billionaire boss and exposit on the way. And instead, I had the billionaire show up and greet my protagonist which was even more dramatic because when does the boss show up to just escort someone around the station? And I could let her do the expositing in a more interesting way because there was tension between these two characters in a way that there was not between my protagonist and just some random character whose job was to babysit her and who probably was never going to show up ever again anyway. Now, learning how to take notes is really hard. I remember my agent telling me that there should be more politics in the opening to Stars of Legion. And I just ignored that note because, frankly, I didn't give a shit about the politics in Stars of Legion. I just wanted to get Zan to, you know, the belly of the starship as quickly as possible so we could start the adventures, right? And see all this different shit on, on the different levels. It was only later, once the book was out and we saw the full measure of it and could take it in, that my agent was like, you know, you're right. It didn't need more politics in the beginning. I'm like, yes, correct. (laughs) That is correct. Uh, So, you know, once again, an editor is going to point you to something that they feel isn't working or stands out. It's up to you to review that feedback and to decide what it means when you put it next to your own vision of the novel. Will making this change or a change to this part of the manuscript bring your novel closer to your vision or move it further away? And that's always really my litmus, litmus test. Is this going to make my vision clearer or make me unhappy? And this is very different to how one does like freelance work, right? Freelancers, you take the notes and you have to make everyone happy and you're actually not in charge of the final product. And a lot of times you don't even see the final product. 
So that's completely different. Totally different way of taking notes. But for novelists, always remember your name is on this shit. And per the contract, you know, you have the ultimate say of, you know, taking the notes, not taking the notes. Now, are there occasions when a publisher might be like, oh, this is, this book is so shitty. And unless you make all these changes, we can't publish it. Sure. That has happened very rarely. Very rarely. Um, I've heard that maybe happening three or four times and always, usually always the writer agreed and was like, you know, it is, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. And they sat down and, and they did the work. Not always. Uh, I think, you know, every once in a while someone's just like, well, fuck you. And they give back the advance and they walk away. So, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, that's incredibly rare. And I would always recommend to folks, these are suggestions. We are trying to make the book better. Everybody is working together to make that final project. But at the end of the day, you are going to be the one defending whatever is said or dealing with whatever is said uh, in the book and the final, you know, reviews and things that come out with the book. You are the public face of that. So keep that in mind when you're taking notes. Uh, I think that's really important for all of us to remember, especially in this day and age where you have to be the final arbiter of what's going up under your name online. All right. Now, Another question I've been getting quite a bit is about long-term career planning. And I've had several people ask me about this long-term, you know, at, at conventions and online and in other places. And as writers, we are small business owners. And that might sound weird to some folks who assumed this was all creative vigor and wordplay. <laughs> But when you start paying quarterly taxes, I can tell you this, <laughs> in reviewing contracts, and your first big check is three months late, and you need it to pay off whatever, medical bills, a credit card, or whatever, the small business owner part really rears its ugly fucking head. And I found it helpful to establish what your career goals are fairly quickly in your career. Not right away. I completely understand. You know, you put out your first book, your first trilogy. You're just starting to understand the business and what's selling and what's working and what's not working for you. And what I discovered is, well, I certainly want to make a living doing this. And I sort of kind of am, even though we're kind of in the red still every month. Um, while I want to do that and, and to make it sustainable, it's not enough for me to, to write a great adventure, which is difficult in itself. Writing a great adventure that people love, that they share with their friends, that makes you any amount of money is great. That's an achievement. But I kind of took that a step further. I was like, I want to create work that's part of the SF canon. These, these classic books that shift our perceptions of the genre, that move the conversation, books that folks will be talking about 20 or 50 years from now. Uh, books that are in conversation with science fiction, you know, the broader science fiction canon and all of that. And I keep this goal in mind whenever I'm working on ideation for my next project. And The Light Brigade is a really great example of a story very much in conversation with military SF novels that have come before it. The nonlinear timeline and breaking folks down into light was a fairly cool big idea to put on top, especially of the military SF aspect. And while it had been done before, right, with novels like Slaughterhouse-Five, which was 
more satirical. My take was clearly unique. And the political discourse within it is very much of, of its time, right? Of its time, which to me is very important. Like so many other military SF novels of the past, you are writing from your time. And I felt that I really captured that uh, in the way that I, I wanted to. And the Stars are Legion did something also that I felt no other book had done, which was posit a world not only composed entirely of women, but one in which men simply did not exist and were never mentioned. In that universe inhabited by the Bavajas and the Katazernas, everyone gives birth to worlds. That's what a human being is. If you cannot give birth to whatever the station wants, then that's very different. I realize that that is also, uh, you know, problematic in many ways. Um, but that was the type of story that I was interested in writing. And knowing what my goal is, right, at every, every juncture really helps me to say yes or no to projects. And it's helped me say no to a lot of tie-in work for various properties that just didn't kind of gel with my vision of what I wanted my career to be and my legacy to be. The truth is that with, you know, a lot of tie-in work, it, it doesn't really boost the sales of the other work. They're buying the next Star Wars novel, not the Cameron Hurley novel. Uh, if something like Conan came up, I might really want to do it just because, fuck it, I just really want to do it. But if I'm going to make, you know, $20,000 writing a book, I'd prefer it was a Cameron Hurley book. Um, and I totally get it. If you got to pay bills, you got to pay bills. And maybe that is your writing goal. I got to pay the fucking bills. Um, I would just say, just be mindful about the stories that you're choosing to spend your time on. Uh, I get, we all got to eat. Um, but if your writing life, your, your novels and short stories are your creative passion and what you want to spend all your time on, make sure that that's the stuff that you have absolute control over. Um, because what you'll find is that doing for work for hire work is a lot like doing freelancing. And it's a lot like doing, again, work for hire, <laughs> work for other people. Uh, and you don't own that content ultimately. Okay. So, uh, one more topic that I've been uh, discussing a bit. And if you are reading the current issue of Locust Magazine, you'll see that I had a recent column in there. And in that column, I talk a little bit about why writing seems to get harder <laughs> the more we do it. And I don't know if that's a, a thing as much with freelancing. I have found with freelancing, it actually seems to get easier. When, once I understand how to write spam email, I can, I get, I can write it much more quickly, actually. And, um, the same with web copy and all those things. Once I understand the, the basics. Now, I think because novels are so much longer and more complex, it's, it's very different for me. Uh, and some of that is that because it's just easier to see what's wrong with it. And I know it seems like a contradiction, uh, but I hear it again and again from other writers. It's not just me. Listen, <laughs> uh, I used to be able to just like write shit and throw in the everything kitchen sink. And then I would spend a tremendous amount of time in the back end making it all make sense. But as I found, as my novels have matured in structure and kind of leveled up, I, I don't get away with that as much as I used to. 
And some of this is me calling it out on myself, me like, oh, God, no, I know that this isn't working. Why? How can I keep going forward if this isn't working? And, you know, as, as I said in the column, you know, I liken it up to leveling up your writing skill as like the leveling up of a performer or an athlete who people who are at a world class level. And the more experience I have writing novels, the easier it is for me to identify now when something is off or something not working in the same way that it might be when, you know, you're performing with an instrument or you're singing where you, you know, right, you know, that it's off. An audience may not know that it's off, but you do because you have immersed yourself in, you know, 20,000 hours of absolute dedicated, you know, practice in this particular field. And in the past, I either didn't have the ability to see these issues or I could see them, but couldn't figure out how to correct them. And understanding that a novel has issues, but knowing it has to ship anyway, is really hard. And yet, if I hang on to it too long, of course, I'm never going to finish it. I'm never going to do anything. So you have to kind of balance that intuition with how much you need to ship something and move it on. <laughs> I I think, you know, really your wisdom and intuition that you have, right? It comes from experiencing what the world has to offer. I can sense patterns a lot better now. It's like, oh, that person's an emotional vampire. Oh, you know, that particular relationship isn't going to work because of X, Y, Z reasons. And all that is, it's not magic. Wisdom and intuition aren't magic. It's just that we have learned to identify patterns. And it's like that in our fiction. And when we're working on fiction, whether again, that's freelancing work or novel writing or short stories, it becomes easier uh, for us to notice when something is working and when something is not. And also what I found is that as now that I'm sort of mid-career, like when you first start out your career, you level up very quickly, I comparatively. Uh, something like Clarion, right? I go to the Clarion writing workshop. You can level up like two years worth of skill in six weeks because it's such concentrated practice. But when you're talking about mid-career level, you already know how to write a book. Clearly, you've written nine or 10 or 12 or whatever. What you're doing now is working on incremental progress with whatever it is, with structure, with characters, with tension, with whatever it is, with prose, right? And it becomes, it takes a lot longer to level up from good enough to great than it does from novice to good enough. And it takes longer and the progress is not as shocking, right? Um, when I finished Light Brigade, I read it through like the third time and I was like, holy shit, I've leveled up. Like I knew in that moment that I had leveled up, but it had taken, that was really, I felt like the first time, and like a little bit with Stars of Legion, I felt it, I had leveled up in that book for the first time, maybe in four or five books, right? <laughs> right? I felt I had, I'd, I'd reached a new level where I could see things. I could see the novel. I could see the structure. I could see the ways that the, the character arcs worked and all of these things in a way that I had not before with some of my previous work. 
you know, I mean, writing books, frankly, just gets tougher because you're better at it. <laughs> and I, you know, there's some comfort in that. I, whenever I despair, I remind myself that, you know, hey, it's tougher because I'm more capable. And I understand that creative pursuits kind of exist on these cycles, right? Of dips, these waves and dips, waves and dips. Uh, and that's just, that's just the writing life. So let's move on to questions. Your questions about the writing life. Now, I've had some folks ask about the importance of writers' unions and what I think of writers' unions. Oh, man. Fucking unions. Unions are the fucking best. If uh, you know any screenwriters who are part of the WGA, then you understand the importance of writers' unions. In fact, I'd love it if the SFWA became a stronger, like a real union. I, I don't want to say star union. It's, it's just an organization. It's not even a union. But if it was like the WGA, how cool would that be? Because, and I get it, that requires more money. I think WGA, it's like 2500 a year or 1500 a year. It's expensive. But it also comes with more heft. Like if someone wanted to hire a particular writer, well, great. Now you have to include bare minimum rates, advances in royalties, you know, no confidentiality or morality clauses, or that writer won't sign with you. And here's the trick. You have to get all of those heavy hitting writers on there. And you have to get the ones who are making the millions and are propping all the, the publishers up who don't really need these protections, right? They don't need them. They are already getting royalties rates and shit that are way better. They're not getting basket accounting, right? Uh, and so once you start getting them involved, then you start to transform the industry because then it's not just these big writers who get these things. It's all everybody else has to get them as well. Anyone else you hire who's part of the union. Now, it's true, of course, that there's always going to be plenty of debut authors willing to work for nothing. It's like that in every field. But increasingly, publishers are making their big money on, again, these established big names and get all those names on board, like I said, and... Look at that. You guys have a fucking union. And I've seen green unions do great things for people. Um, I know people like to complain about them because, oh, they're costing us so much money. Unions are not the fucking problem. Uh, you know, people making a dollar more an hour is not what's killing uh, American economy and problems. It's all of these fucking rich people. It's 400 bazillionaires who uh, believe that hoarding money is somehow uh, making them moral and wonderful people. When in fact, you know, sharing that wealth and actually making sure that it gets down to everybody so that everybody is lifted up would be much better instead of all of these people having to scramble for health insurance. I mean, how do you pay for, you know, a health insurance premium that is more that, you know, costs more now than your rent or your mortgage? Um, you know, my mortgage payment and my premium for health insurance is about the same. It's really fucked up. And my great grandfather worked at a public transit company for like 40 years and retired with like over a million in assets, right? And who could do that now? How, how do you manage to stay at a job for 40 years? I would like to know that answer. Uh, that's unions. And I do believe freelance writers of all sorts could have a union as strong as the WGA. And we're seeing workplaces unionize across the journalism space, which is excellent, very much as a reaction, of course, to abhorrent workplace policies. You know, as, as someone who, frankly, was laid off with no notice and no severance and no health insurance, like, I can confirm that unions are absolutely necessary to help rein in literally this unmitigated greed and these cr this cruelty of our workplaces. I mean, I've seen I get, all of these gaming places, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I forget which one it was. 
but where they literally brought everybody in and just said, well, you're all fired. Well, fired. This is your last day of health insurance. You don't have any severance to hundreds of people. Like how greedy and fucked up do you have to be to not plan for that? Uh, and to have that be something that is just normal. I mean, we're seeing that in many, many places, places again, like I said, with hundreds or thousands of workers and they're doing it because they're all owned by venture capitalists, right? And, uh, it's a, the cost of doing business is just, let's just fire everyone and fire, not only fire everyone, but fire everyone with no safety net, no protections, no benefits, no nothing, no notice, you know, give people six weeks notice for God's sake. Uh, and they don't. And the only way that is ever going to change is if we band together and say, we are not going to take this anymore. Fuck you. And um, I would also love to do a general strike and general work stoppage, which I think would be great. Fuck you. We're not creating your content anymore. <laughs> right? uh, watch, watch all these places run on content that have no content. Oh, shit. We make all of our money on content. Anyhow, so speaking of layoffs, uh, April asked, how has your writing process changed since you were laid off? How much time do you devote to writing, business, admin, etc.? Well, like so many things, it's complicated. The first four, six weeks of the layoff, I had like enough in donations, thank God, and Patreon support, thank God, that I could focus on finishing The Broken Heavens, which was super late and absolutely positively due. And I was like, you know what? Now that I have the support, and I know we're not going to die and be on the street corner with a sign saying we'll work for insulin. I can focus on this project that really needs to be done. And when I got that project done, I would get paid. So that was good too. So I was like, okay, I'll do this and I'll, I'll make some money. And so after that was done, I started looking for jobs, which was super depressing, to say the least, because not just because of the jobs that were available, um, but just because it was reminding me just how stressed out I've been, especially the last two years. And honestly, you would think the last two years would be better because I had a really flexible workplace. It was great. I could work remotely. But the problem with working remotely is that you basically decide you're on call all the time. And I was always, you know, hooked to my phone. I was always checking email at all hours. And I would never felt like I was really off because, you know, put that next to your writing career and answering emails for that and blog posts and whatever. And you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning and you're working until nine o'clock at night. And it's just, it gets to be depressing <laughs> and exhausting. So uh, at about the, the eight week mark, again, when Spoken Heavens was in, uh, the reality was sort of settling in, in that what we needed month to month was actually about a thousand more than we were making on Patreon every month. Um, so we were constantly going in the hole or going in the hole and then getting a writing payment and then paying off stuff and trying to get ahead by a couple more months and then getting in the hole again. I mean, health premiums and drugs are expensive and my salary, you know, supports me and my spouse and his grandma and our dogs. So it has to stretch a long way. And we paid off a shipwreck of bills in those early weeks, again, cashed out things that shouldn't be cashed out. But that meant that month to month was easier. But again, we were making it on working class wages, right? It's, I, I feel it. I feel it and it sucks. I don't leave the house because if I leave the house, I'll spend money. So I just sit here and work and garden, which is good. 
Uh, but, you know, quarterly taxes are a fucking killer. Taxes on the monthly Patreon take home are just ridiculous. Um, they're the small business credit, I guess, the alternative minimum tax for small businesses. You actually have to be making $150,000 a year to actually take that tax because of our, you know, wonderful government and their, their love of people who are wealthy, but not the rest of us. Uh, so in those early weeks, yes, it was great. I'd get up, I'd write until like early afternoon, I'd do a break, I'd do some admin, I'd knock off by four o'clock, which was great because that's about the time my brain starts to, my brain starts to wind down between like three and four. And it was lovely. And then I spent a lot of time before the, uh, Spanish book tour, just looking for jobs and going to interviews. And that meant interruptions and for in person and on the phone and, writing chunks got smaller and smaller. And I was ranting about this to some friends. And one of my writer friends recommended, hey, just take six months and try and make a go of writing full time. Just ease up on the job. So I mean, still, you know, send out some applications, but ease up on your full throttle and just see if you can make it and see if you can give it a go. And that's largely what I've been doing since about July when I lost and I lost that whole month to like the Spanish book tour. Um, so trying to fit in writing or job hunting in July was, it was not going to happen. And that was the other thing too, where I was like, I knew I was going to be gone in two weeks in July. And I was like, oh, fuck, you don't want to start a new job. And then be like, I'm leaving next week to go for a book tour. Um, these days then I get up about 7.30 and I have coffee and breakfast. I read until about nine. I've been doing a ton of research and reading at the library. Again, talk about refilling that bucket. Um, that's uh, light brigade did the same thing. Stars Legion, same thing. You need those ideas are coming from somewhere and it's all that stuff that you're ingesting. So I read until about nine. Then I either work on projects like this until lunchtime or I write, I work on losing gravity or the Patreon story for the month. And you know, lunchtime is a good break to do something physical. I like to get up and get out, especially if it's nice out. I like to garden. I clean, I paint, I walk the dogs. And by two or three, I try to get back to work until four or five which is why that's another good time to, it's better, it's better to write in the morning and then do all of these little projects uh, in the afternoon, you know, during that when there's a, a shorter amount of time. So I don't have time to concentrate as much. And then I should break for dinner, have some time with my spouse. And I like to cook again. So it's about doing stuff with your hands. So I will usually try and cook. Uh, occasionally I'll come up with some good writing ideas, uh, while I'm doing that and again, doing other things. And I'll spend like another hour before bed, like from seven to eight, staring at the manuscript. And by eight 30, I'm certainly tuckered out and I'll read again from eight 30 until I'm tired, which is usually nine 30 or 10. And clearly I do sleep a lot more, not a lot more, maybe an hour or two more than I used to. Like my bare minimum is eight hours. So nine or 10 hours is great. And I was certainly always operating um, at a minimum, right, when I had the day job. And one thing I've noticed, of course, is that despite, like, the monthly deficit, <laughs> which sucks, uh, I am certainly much more mentally and physically healthy than I was trying to manage a day job and a full-time writing career. And that's a really hard thing to realize, is that being poor and struggling and n not really keeping our head above water is shitty and not sustainable but also i don't know how much doing how much longer doing two full-time jobs when i have a chronic illness is 
and there's heart issues in my family is a, is a great idea, right? <laughs> it's a great idea. So you're kind of weighing and measuring, right? And because part of me is, of course, treating this respite as temporary because of that deficit. Another part of me just wants it to continue as long as possible because I am certainly feeling happier and more clear headed and much stronger than I have since probably at least 2014 when I flamed and burned out the first time. That was three books in one year. That was day job. That was, it was fucking disaster. And I suspect I'd be better at coming up with a real writing routine that's a little bit more, a little bit less loosey goosey if I could actually get myself to believe that I'd be writing 100% full time in six months. Uh, but frankly, you know, contracted money dries up after about next spring's royalty season and unless Patreon is 5k a month, we're, we just can't make it long term. So something's got to give at some point. Again, uh, we will see. Again, maybe, you know, maybe movie money will come. <laughs> $2,500 for 18 months. Maybe movie money. Maybe again, you know, we'll do a, a Patreon, um, campaign. We'll do a 30 day, like, Hey, here's a bunch of shit that I'll give away to get us to 5k. Um, uh, because certainly, you know, we've, we've got to figure it out. Like I said, something's got to give. And what was giving was me. It's <laughs> not good. All right. David asked organic living tech doing horrific things has shown up a few times in your books. Do you have any favorite examples of this sort of thing by other creators? Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> shit, yeah. Uh, the recycler scene in the Stars of Legion was actually inspired by a scene in Blood Tide by Melvin Burgess, the, where the main character actually attacks a massive mutant that regenerates. Like, it's regenerating its heart while the protagonist is cutting it out. It is the best scene. I've reread it probably five or six times. It is wonderful. And the rest of the book is good, too. But I I love that scene. It's very memorable. Uh, of course, there's Jeff Vandermeer. He does lots of weird creature shit and a lot of his work, like from Venice Underground to Bourne. And you can also find a lot of this in Jeff Ryman's work, like uh, Air and Christopher Priest's Dream Archipelago books. And there's lots of new weird authors. The new weird movement is, yeah, that's really like new weird and the new wave are kind of my big influences. And people like China Mieville, KJ Bishop, Steph Swainson, they've done some really creepy things with like bio modifications and organic tech. Um, and of course there's Sue Burke's book, Semiosis, which I've been crowing about to everybody I fucking know because it explores how a human colony on an alien planet is affected by and affects a series of sentient plant species. And I'm obsessed with that book, especially some new gardens. Gardens and ends up Ends up with like poison hemlock and poison ivy in her goddamn yard and pokeweed apparently is also it's a beautiful plant, but apparently also poisonous some shit and all these things. Anyway, and I absolutely have that second book. It's, I think it's semiosis. I forget what the second one is called, but it's Sue Burke's semiosis. And there's another one and I have that on my library request list because the first was so fucking good. And that's just to get you started. There's a lot of great stuff out there. As far as like creepy body horror, I also love, of course, Cassandra Ka does some great creepy body horror horror shit and uh, I love all of her things as well. So, all right. Uh, now that you have some books to order and pre-order or to request in your library, I'm going to call it for this latest episode. So thanks to everyone for your patience and support. Goal is to get these back on a regular schedule. I'm putting it on my fucking calendar. So 
Till next time, fam. Get to work!